Hello, everyone. Welcome to Affirmative Interaction. I'm your host, Jordan Smart. We have Logan Stout here with his wonderful head of hair. We have Michael Nixon, Esther Battle, and Danielle Bernard. And we are just going to be talking about what's been going on. But before we get into that, how is everyone doing? Esther, I understand that you went to a protest this past weekend. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, I did go to, I went to a couple, actually. I went to one Friday night. Um, that was really, really exhilarating, honestly. It grew from like 40 to 200 people. There was no issues with cops. Um, it was just like a super empowering experience. And then I went to one on Saturday, um, which was like the larger one. It was like, like it started off as like one of those like organized marches where like you, like we had permission to be there and all that kind of stuff um, until seven. We were supposed to be done by seven, but you know, like it's not a protest if you have permission. So we stayed past seven um, and about an hour and a half after that, um, cops engaged and tear gassed and shot rubber bullets and all of that um, stuff. So um, um, yeah, it was very scary. Um, and very sad. Um, later on in the night, um, people died. Um, mm. So it's not been, yeah, it's been a rough couple of days. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing, um, Esther. Logan, I also understand that you attended a few protests yourself. Um, feel free to tell us a little bit about your experience, too. Uh, yeah, um, I'm in Berkeley, so I went to one in Oakland on Friday. I went to one in San Francisco on Saturday. I went to one yesterday again in Oakland, and there's another one um, this evening in Oakland. Um, the one Friday was, um, I think they wanted to be in the forefront of the conversation of uh, by any means necessary, and that one started at 8 p.m. on Friday which was uh, just interesting um, for me when I was like, oh, protest, 8 p.m., that seems late. And, you know, some of my friends, as I was communicating with them, they're like, hey, it's going to get pretty rough out there. And so I, I left at around 9.30. Um, yeah, really interesting crowd in, in Oakland. I mean, the, the city is pretty unique in how it exists anyways. Um, and so it, it's kind of cool to see all the different, like, shades and diversity that you see supporting these causes. Um, that you don't see across the country. Uh, I think in the Midwest, especially, you just see pretty much black and brown people kind of standing up for this. And so to see some of the different groups was pretty neat. Um, San Francisco, uh, that, I didn't like that one. They, I, yeah, that was, I mean, it was a great protest. It was just a weird vibe for me. <laughs> um, it's just like, sometimes it's just tough, tough to kind of like uh, balance all of that um, within a protest and it can be difficult. Yeah, someone thought I was a cop, so that was bad. Uh, um, that's why I didn't brush my hair today. It is what it is. I'm trying to be, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God you're not in recovery. You would have fooled us all. <laughs> <laughs> Nixon, how has these past couple of days been for you? How, how have you been holding up? Uh, well, first of all, sh shout out from our co-host, Adrian, who... I think maybe on the way. Just had to throw that up there. Um, how am I doing? Yeah, I mean that's 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 complex and nuanced for all of us, right? You know, 
Um, as the audience knows, I've been on an extended, it's going bad streak just because of COVID. And um, I mean, I guess that streak just continues for that as well as, you know, other, you know, things that we're seeing now with, with these, um, with these killings and um, just the exhaustion of all the conversations around, you know, the protests and, and things of that nature. And um, I've actually, you know, I, I try to, I try to just, you know, speak my mind a bit on social media and just kind of let it hang out. Um, but I feel like I've leaned into that energy even more recently and it feels amazing. And so that's been good to just like not engaging with the plethora. I mean, I just have so many unread messages in my inbox and I just love it. I just stare at the unread messages and just like laugh, you know, because I have zero time for it. I have no time for the fragility. I have no time for the misinformation and the false narratives. Um, you know, I'm, I'm good, you know, and, um, so I, th I think, you know, weirdly, I think I'm better than normal um, because of that. I think it's been a bit freeing. Um, I think it continues to be depressing that we have a racist lunatic as, a pre as our president um, in the White House. And the fact now that he's sort of fully wrapping himself up with this, um, you know, this religio-political persona he's trying to put together is really frustrating because like, I don't know, and this is turning into a bit of a ramble and I might be getting some places too soon, but I feel like, you know, there are these, I think being black and Christian as well is always like a weird space to be in. And so like feeling myself kind of being offended on the basis of my Christianity is something I haven't felt in a while because it's mostly just like I'm offended on the basis of my identity, which doesn't fit in that space or America in general. But to see um, Donald Trump use the Bible and um, the church and shout out to Bishop Bud who just like completely flamed him for using her church as a prop. Um, another reminder of why we need more women in ministry. Um, but I mean, just seeing that um, and the way that he, you know, tear grass protesters for his photo op um, and just use using God and the Bible and the church is just like, you know, just as window dressing for his messaging is, is actually depressing on some levels. And so, yeah, man, this, there's, there's just, a, there's so many different angles to it. It's, it's a lot. Um, but yeah, I'm glad to be here with you all to kind of process through and talk about uh, some of it. Very good. So just a quick note, uh, Esther stepped out, Adrian went down to Indianapolis to see her and help her move. So thankfully he's going to be in the show a couple of minutes and they'll be back soon. Until then, Danielle, Diano, how are you doing? First of all, love the head wrap. Very serene, very relaxing. Like the whole thing you got going on in your screen is relaxing me. How has your weekend been? Um, I'm doing the best I can uh, with the circumstances. As you see, I attempt to keep my space uh, calm, relaxing, a space where I can be 
centered. So definitely been leaning into a lot of meditation, uh, a lot of yoga, a lot of contemplation and silence. Um, unafraid to say no right now and to take a lot of breaks um, and just kind of processing everything that's happened um, and everything that's continuing to happen at this time because you know it's not just what's for all of us it's not just what's going on in the nation with um the killings and the protests and the inefficacy of the government it's also we're still in a pandemic and the covid numbers are still going up and we all have other things happening in our lives so it's definitely been a very interesting week and a half. So I can just say that I'm here. Well, thank you for sharing that. And yeah, it's it's been real, it's been real taxing of a week and I have to say, it just seems like one thing after the other keeps happening and black America just can't catch their breath. Um, so we're gonna actually talk a little bit about that right now. And we're going to talk a little bit about that right now. And hopefully Esther and Age will be back soon. We're going to talk about what's been going on in America. As many of you may know, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, uh, Breonna Taylor, excuse me, and George Floyd have been recent victims of, honestly, I will say, the racist structures that are apparent in our country. And I don't want to go into, you know, I, I don't want to kind of go down the details of what happened to each of them. Personally, for our, I think for all of our mental health, I think we understand what happened. I would want us to just really dig into how do we think this, these events are affecting us long term in terms of secondary trauma, which is the literal uh, personification of seeing someone that looks like you being killed on camera and those frequent exposures having long-term mental health effects. According to Monica Williams, clinical psychologist and director of the Center for Mental Health Disparities, she says that graphic videos combined with live, live combined with lived experiences of racism can create severe psychological problems reminiscent of post-traumatic stress syndrome. So what do you guys think about that? And how do you guys think that plays into us trying to really make this system work for all people? Um, well, I definitely have, I think myself personally experienced some of the effects of just the ways in which uh, black bodies have been uh, disrespected in the media through uh, the sharing of the videos, the repeated photos. Um, and seeing that can lead to some very serious like trauma responses in myself and I know in others, uh, some of us, we start to feel you know, anger, we start to feel cynical uh, we start to do things to kind of numb. So, but the overexposure has made it somewhat numb, like, oh, it's just another one, you know? Um, all of which are natural responses, even some type of guilt, you know, like 
I'm still alive and yet this person who could have been me isn't. And so it makes it, it can also infringe on our ability to feel joy, um, our ability to enjoy the lives that we are living. And so um, I think with trauma and especially with this, it kind of requires us to figure out, one, to look internally, but also to figure out how to handle our trauma responses um, individually, because it will look different for all of us. So some people, it does require deleting social media apps off the phone, so you're not constantly engaging with it. I know that's something that works for me. Um, for some people, it involves, you know, leaning into community or uh, being able to exercise and eat well. Like it's just different things we have to figure out to do that will empower us to work through that trauma and process it so that we're not constantly living in fear and living in terror of the next event and the possibility that the next event could be us. Yeah, I think that's that's very well said, Danny. Um, you know, I think um, it looks like we have Esther and Adrian back, so <clears throat> we'll just throw them back in there. What's up, guys? And and, and sorry, Mike, to get you off, but do you want to recognize that Garrison and Simone aren't here? Um, they had something that they had to take care of, so just keep them in your thoughts and prayers, and hopefully we'll see them back next week. Yeah, please continue, Mike. For sure. Pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Um, yeah, I think there's there's a variety of different emotions and responses, and I really want to shout out um, Danny and Esther in particular because I think it was the day that the George Floyd video um, dropped. We kind of had a conversation about this in the chat around, you know should we watch it or, or should we not? And it's it's sort of an internal conversation you have with yourself. Um, and to be transparent, I tend to always end up seeing them. And, and there's sometimes it's not even intentional. Like I remember the Philando Castile one, I literally was just on Facebook when it was happening. And it, you know, it was before Facebook was really like, clearing out the timeline like that. And it had been shared so many times that it was just there, you know? Um, with the George Floyd one, it was it was a little bit more complex. And so, you know, it, it's weird because there's sort of this tension because on the one hand, I mean, you you are just tired of seeing it, you know? There's the, there's the self-ideation that comes into it. It's like, you see the face now on a t-shirt, you see your own face on a t-shirt. Um, you know, I've had dreams about that before. Um, and there's, you know, the thought process of, you know, what does that mean for your family who's often left in the wake of that after the protests are done and the effects that it can have on those families and those communities. Um, and so what I would say is, you know, then on the flip side of that, it's the, it's just the harsh reality that the way things are right now if that moment isn't caught on camera, then, you know, that death, my death or someone else's death is guaranteed to not receive justice. Now, even with it on camera, it's likely that the officer's, you know, not gonna be convicted based on the stats we've had thus far. 
Um, but at least there'd be some sort of, you know, public justice for what that's worth, you know, that, that folks know that, you know, you died unjustifiably, um, it gives maybe some solace, you know, but the, but the sad, the sick part is that someone has, you know, millions of people have to see your last moments, you know, uh, for that to happen. And so that's not a great feeling at all. So the last thing I'll say real quick is I, I'm not, I'm not numb to seeing the videos, you know, like I, I because every time, you know, you see a black death, um, you know, there's, I don't feel numb to that. It has an effect on me every single time, whether that's tears, whether that's frustration, whether it's a combination of all those things. But I definitely am numb to the conversation. Um, I'm even numb in some ways to the events and, you know, not in the protests. And I understand the need for the protests and I'm not speaking against them, but you kind of get to the point where it's like, man, you know, Yes, it's an outlet for us to like just be frustrated and to get it out. But the way that they're just being co-opted now by people that, you know, are doing looting and then blaming that on those of us who are just trying to raise our voices to what's really happening. And now the conversation just becomes around how people have hijacked the protests, but the people who are hijacking the protests are never held accountable. And Black Lives Matter just has to continue to carry that weight. And then it's just like, I'm just numb to all of that, you know? Um, it's hard to engage in all of that. Um, I was conflicted about Blackout Tuesday, like just, just all of it. I just don't know, you know, how much of it is really, um, you know, I don't know where, where a lot of that is getting us anymore. And that's what's difficult because it seems like that's all we have. Um, you know, people keep talking about, let's do it another way, but I'd love to know what that other way is. You know, the other the other way would that which would be great would be that the law would be upheld. You know, that'd be awesome. But, um, you know, in, in lieu of that, I'm not sure what else we're left with. And that's sort of an empty feeling right now. Hello, guys. How are you? Sorry for being late. Um, Nixon, I definitely resonate with literally everything that um, that you were expressing. I um, was kind of processing my thoughts with um, uh, one of the VPs at Walla Walla, uh, Doug Tilstra. Um, and I was kind of telling him how like, I felt like this was a strong word, but with everything that was happening um, Saturday night, I felt radicalized. Like it was a different kind of anger that I don't think I had ever experienced. Like the 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 convictions, the frustrations were always there. Um, but I'm sure as as Esther has kind of shared, this was like really close to home now with with what she went through. My sister went to a protest in in Rochester that also got pretty explosive toward the end. And, and she's sharing with me the things that she saw. And then to see politicians just flat out lie at that podium, that's the kind of helplessness that makes people want to riot. Like yeah. just straight up, just, just straight up. 
And I love when I, I watched um, Trevor Noah, his reflection on it, where people kept asking, um, like, what, what will writing solve? What will that prove? And then he kind of flipped the question around. I was like, well, what does not writing prove? Like, you look through any peaceful protest, what did that solve? What, what did that accomplish? We received the, the same scrutiny when we were marching in streets peacefully. Kaepernick received the same scrutiny when he kneeled. MLK experienced Bloody Sunday. Like you go down the list of peaceful protests and you feel as though you are being asked to hold a higher moral standard than the leaders enforcing the laws. And I, I feel like white Americans don't realize how suffocating and helpless white supremacy can be for people of color to to see that to know that your loved ones were tear gassed mm. and then to be looked at you and say but why are why are you that angry what is that going to solve and it's just like bro you're you're not listening and that's part of the hijack that i think we've seen in different areas like the blackout is the conversation is shifting. We're, we're spending so much time wrestling with the ethics of the rioting and not focusing enough time on what led people to riot. And that has been the most frustrating thing that I could imagine. And, and that it's like, obviously no one is going to say that they love rioting. But can I honestly say that I'm gonna sit here and condemn it? No, I don't I don't think so. I don't think I can can stand here and say I'm condemning those riots because they they felt helpless. I felt helpless and I chose to not even go to to a protest. So I can't even imagine what it felt like for someone in that space to watch police officers antagonize them, escalated violently, have white nationalists out there uh, assisting officers with their guns, with their weapons. We have video footage to show that what we're saying was actually happening. And then to see that bit get left out when mayors and governors are addressing Americans, it's stuff like that that makes people go crazy. It, it's stuff like that, then that makes them feel helpless and that pushes people to do things out of character. And, and I, I feel like I've spent too much time talking with friends and family members about the ethics of the riot. And it's like, why, why are we spending so much time wrestling over a symptom? Why are we not talking about the disease? That yeah. that's, that's what it's, it's been irking me, man. And yeah, it's it's been hard to process. It it has been hard to think that my nephew has to grow up in this world and I can't promise him that I, I can protect him. A, a heartbreaking feeling where I I 
yesterday, I had to walk out of my room because I broke down and started crying and I didn't want him to see and ask why. Um, it's, it's been heavy, bro. It's, it's been heavy, but it's been a lot. Um, I think I'm better now that I'm here in Indy for sure. But yeah, man, we, we, we could all use some, some joy for, for sure. How about you, Logan? Is I mean, I'm I'm interested to you know see how you're processing and how you're you know how this is looking through your eyes as an ally. Um, what have you maybe seen from your community? What have you been seeing from your friends that has stirred thought that maybe you'd like to share if you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. I mean, uh, first like the the conversation within this kind of hits home and i don't even know if anyone noticed i mean i'm sure i know you noticed you commented on it but i was the person that put this in the group chat last tuesday morning and some people were like you know could you throw a trigger warning with this and i felt terrible i like that felt really bad for probably three days um because that's the last thing i want is for someone to experience trauma based off of me and you know with with the group chat it has kind of changed a little bit adding three people but you know we had kind of shared a little differently um and i think that you know that was a situation where i shared i didn't share the video as much as i shared like a link that talked about it and i think that's an important part for me just thinking through this um learning maybe from how um like me i was doing something that was that was maybe um, not what you would say, oh, that, like sharing that video was racist, but it was anti-progress for a community that's hurting. Like I was, my action was not re responding to saying like, wow, they could handle this differently than I would. Um, or maybe even that Michael would, had I just sent it to Michael as he expresses that he's. And so like as an ally, it's really important to use your voice in a way that's going to bring positive conversation, but also be really thinking through how the people of color, especially black people in your in your life are going to be able to navigate through some of your your dialogues. Um, but at the same point, like it's really important to be vocal because the one common trend I've seen, whether it's been interviews I've listened to, protests I've gone to, speakers I've heard, um, articles I've read, the black community has said, this isn't an our problem. Like racism isn't a black people's problem. It is a white people's problem. It's a white America's problem. They're the ones that perpetuate it. They're the ones that protect it. They're the ones that are leaders in our, I don't care if you're in your Congress, local government, the Senate, the vice president, the president, a governor, you have every ability in your wheelhouse to say black lives matter, to say it out loud, to say, um, even sentiments that would agree that you feel that problems are taking place. Um, we want to start talking about like how some of these things might change. Well, uh, some of our people that actually hold authority and power um, actually speak change to power. And let's trickle down because I'm really disappointed in my, my teachers that I grew up that were teaching me about stuff. They were telling me history lessons and telling me about how the world worked as a young boy and I'm looking at them like or post comments and say all lives matter, not knowing what in the 
heck they're talking about, knowing that this is literally a movement created to discredit black lives, pushed by white supremacy. And for me to say like, if you're a teacher and you're so ignorant, like you're harming, you're, you're not bringing, because the conversation is that all lives do not matter and that's why we say black lives matter. Like it's very simple. Um, and so like I talk about the higher levels, but it falls, pastors, teachers, parents, um, brothers, sisters, older, younger, it doesn't matter. You have the opportunity to say things, but be very careful also how you navigate those conversations. If you're struggling with wording, go quote something, go read someone that's written an article that is a black man or woman and talks about allyship and just quote it, just put it as a Facebook status, put it as a tweet, put it on your Instagram story, message it to a family member. I really enjoyed this article. I thought you would too. And we can say like, oh, what's that do? I know what it does because my inbox gets flooded regularly with people that are thankful that they, not that, that I'm speaking out, but that they have learned things from the conversations that I've been willing to have because it, it breeds positivity. So, I mean, I think not to ramble, but you have a lot more power in your life to end this thing than anyone like wants to admit or cares to realize. You influence people. Every single person has people to influence. I don't care if it's, you know, Adrian's nephew has influence over him and he's a small child and, you know, all the way up to, you know, our grandparents. And, and so really using your influence to, you know, speak truth to change is really, really, really important. Thank you for sharing everyone. And um, I, I really like what you said, Logan, because I feel like it's so essential. And, and I'll say now more than ever, I feel like when I've been in conversations with people over this past weekend, and, P and some of my friends have asked, hey, Jonina, what can I do? I've just been throwing books, documentaries, just resources, 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 resources. Because when I was younger, people would say, you know, knowledge is power. I'm like, no, it's not, because I could read a book and I cannot stick to walls and I can't fly. That's not, it's not power at all. But then as I'm getting older, I'm realizing that you know, having the uh, the verbiage, the language to be anti-racist, to combat the structures that are oppressing black and brown people, you know, those are those are superpowers. I think one of the biggest, I was talking to Imani about this yesterday, and David, he was asking me, you know, what can you do to learn more? Um, I said, literally having the language to communicate some of these ideas, that is a superpower. Because when you're in these conversations, it's absolutely vital to be able to communicate what the black community is going through, how we got here and what we can do moving forward. And it's so essential to be able to have the knowledge to do that. And to white people, if you wanna help, you have to learn, you have to read, you have to watch, and you have to listen. Those are the things that you have to do. It goes beyond blackout posts this. Look, blackout post was cool, but my thing is, Feel free to black on Instagram, but you gotta open up a book. That is, Yo, what is know really what that gonna meant. help you move forward. What did blackout post like? I didn't. Even, I I opened my Instagram and I followed like a pretty mixed group, and it was a bunch of white people, and I was like, oh, this is annoying. But then I saw Charlie Kurt dragging it, and I was like, never mind. I love blackout posts. Like I didn't want to agree with Charlie Kirk on this, so I was like, <laughs> but I still don't even know what it is because I was like, none of the posts had any description. It was just like blackout post or Tuesday, Black Lives Matter. And I was like, yeah, I get it, Black Lives Matter, but what, could you like describe what I'm supposed to be doing with this information? I just like dragged it on Twitter and went about with my day, so. Anybody know? 
Yeah, it, it was from what from my understanding, it was supposed to be part of an effort to um, overcome the Instagram algorithm. So the, the instructions that were originally given were white people go through the the people that you follow and physically use the mute feature on Instagram and mute white people who are posting content right now, either about like, that's completely unrelated. Like there's a bunch of people that are just going on with their lives and posting their selfies and stuff or mute people, um, white people that are talking about social justice, like mute them so that your feed is full of black people doing, talking about whatever they're talking about right now. That was what it was supposed to be. That makes so much sense. <laughs> but it turned into people thinking, oh, we're not supposed to post anything. Let's like, like to, I don't know. I don't know how we got the black squares, but essentially yeah, what it turned good. into was people thinking we're not supposed to post today. Like we're supposed to black out social media and go silent, but that wasn't the idea. The idea was black people keep posting everything that you're posting so that when other people are muting all their other content, they're seeing whatever it is you're saying. And it was supposed to go for a certain period of time. And after that amount of time, people were asked to reflect, okay, what was this like for you when you couldn't engage with social media the way that you normally do? And you were forced to see everything that's happening from the perspective mm. of black people. It's, yeah, it's still all black folks. That's all it is. Real I came in front. I, I got got good. I woke up in the morning. I'm like, yo, let me find a, a shade of black. Maybe no one else is using me. Just drop it. And then when I saw <laughs> when I saw Esther say what she said in the group, I'm like, all right, let me put some stuff in my story. Let me put some resources in my story. This year, let me try to write a piece and maybe drop it later on this week yeah. and push things that way. But I think that's what's also yeah. disappointing too. And I feel like I, I don't want to move the conversation too much, but it's also disappointing when things like that, those opportunities that can really be something that is well done, really just gets lost in all the noise. Yeah, yeah. I'll just I'll just say real quick about the blackout. I was I was a little I was a little conflicted too, and so um, I'm wearing my against the wall hat. So I actually did the blackout on the against the wall page. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just, just in case, so like if anybody tried to come for me, it's like, hey, wait, oh, it's there. <laughs> and then I and then I shared it. I shared that to my story, so that'd be on my story. I made, That's like I it, saved it to my joint, so I can go back to the highlights later. You know, so I just saw like Black Lives Matter. Did y'all see the Black Lives Matter? Like people tag you on this weekend. It was like tag some of those. I got tagged in so many of these. Like oh, yeah. tag someone. Like you'll say Black oh, Lives Matter. I, I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely yes. broke the chain. It's so useless. I'm, I'm, Me too. Yeah, I was. Oh. I was happy to. I'm a chain breaker, man. <laughs> I like, <laughs> like nineteen of those. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, John. Saying, come on. I'm just being honest, bro. Like, we we can be honest on here too. I just, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I did want to respond to something that you said earlier, Nick, about like general exhaustion with like this conversation. Mm. I feel like 
when things like this happen, like when things like these blackout posts, stuff like like that is stuff that I like. I'm over that. Like maybe a couple years ago, you would have seen me like this is a way for me to say say something. Like I think those movements are for people that are like I just really need to feel like I'm doing something. And yeah. for some people, I understand that it's, there are some people that it's like I live. I don't have the means to go to these protests. I like there. It, I don't have the means to donate. Like I feel limited in what I can do. Mm. And so it's like this is like an avenue i guess which i understand but i'm still skeptical because i feel like work harder and find something that you can do so like that part of it i am exhausted with i think something that this during this past week that has helped me not feel it so much ex let me rephrase that i'm less i am not exhausted with the conversation this time around because i feel like the conversation is happening differently in some spaces. Like I feel like what we're seeing is extremely heartbreaking. And also like, at least in my lifetime on this level, it feels very like unprecedented. Like I, I don't think I, I don't think I've seen this sort of like open display of what black people are feeling in such a way that it, in a way that is so raw and so honest. And I think that makes the whole conversation that we're having feel really different. And I will admit, like, I had really mixed feelings about like, the quote unquote rioting and stuff like that at first. Um, I even told Adrian, like after that um, protest that I went to on Friday night, um, you know, it was advertised like a peaceful protest, et cetera. And then, um, some people, there was people there that were like very vocal, like we, like they, they weren't there, like they did not want it to be peaceful. They were like, we are here to break stuff. We are here. Like there was a few people that were super vocal about that. And like, I will admit in that moment, I felt very angry about that because I, I felt like, listen, like you, you doing that is like endangering me. Like you're endangering my life. You're endangering all the lives of all the other people here that came here to do something peaceful. And like, there was a couple times where like, I was very scared. Like were they three things, a window was broken, things like that. And I got very scared and very nervous. And so I felt very conflicted after that night about, um, about that and mm. about that just because of like, like I, I, it just, it felt unfair that people came here under the notion that we were gonna be peacefully protesting and that at any moment we could all be put in danger because somebody had a different idea and cops are not going to, they're gonna be, they're not, they're gonna be indiscriminate in who they choose yeah. to respond to, right? Yeah. However, after what occurred on Saturday, my feelings were way less nuanced because I feel like after seeing after seeing that regardless of what we do, we're in that danger anyway, it's it's like, I, why, why would I direct my anger at you? Like you are angry right now because you know what I didn't necessarily know the day before. Like you're angry and upset and you wanna act out on this because you understand it doesn't really like, it doesn't matter if we break things or not, we are still in danger of the cops treating us however they want to regardless because I can tell you for a fact on Saturday night we were standing there linked arms doing absolutely nothing when they launched the tear gas canisters at us nobody did anything so I'm way like my feelings on it are way less nuanced now because I think I I got just a small glimpse into something that other people 
have understood for a lot longer than mm -hmm. me because they haven't been able to be as protected and sheltered from it as I have. Like I've lived my whole life and never had to personally know a person who has been directly impacted by this, right? Like I don't know people who have been imprisoned. I don't know people personally who have been killed by police. There are lots of black people in this country who live their entire lives as long as they can remember with those experiences. And when you're living like that, I, I understand how you wouldn't, you're not looking at it the same way, right? And so, yeah, because I feel like because some of that is starting to be expressed in a more open way, I think the conversation in some places and on some platforms is different than it has been in the past. I think what we need is for the conversations that we're seeing happening on Twitter and in like more local media places to get pushed to the mainstream because a lot of people are missing out on really important perspectives on what's going on right now and it's shading their perspective on what they're seeing. I definitely agree. And I think something you said, Esther, about this uh, raw expression of emotion is really key to me uh, just because I think that there aren't many spaces where Black people have the opportunity to actually express emotion. Um, we've seen just like on a daily basis as a Black person in America, you are on guard and limiting how you express emotion because of how other people will react to it. You know, you're careful about how you express frustration with a coworker because someone might feel threatened or offended or your coworker might start crying even though you're the one who was wronged, you know, or having to not being able to directly express how you feel about the government or about uh, that's local or national or even about your church or any of those things because it's tinged as why are you getting so aggressive? Everything's fine. Why are you so upset? And so for so long, Black people in this country have been invalidated and not given spaces in which to process that emotion. And so finally, things like protests and riots become the space where you have, you the only space where you have to process emotion. And I think that in some ways it's healthy um, to an extent, because that's how you get through PTSD, is being able to finally be able to express what has been going on and being able to process that in a space. So I think at protests, Black people's experiences, you're finally around people who are like, you know what, I get it. And I'm upset too. And I think it's important to create those spaces, not just as protests, but within local communities so that those spaces are there for not only the health of Black people, but also for the push of the agenda of Black people, to push the interest of Black people. Um, I recently did something with some friends on a call the other day where we each took a minute to just express however we felt so, and you did that vocally. So we went around on the Zoom call, the five of us, and 
all kinds of things came out, you know, like just being able, there were screams, there was crying, there was, there was a lot of cussing. Like there's just being able to fully express yourself and let it all out and then take some time to breathe and then close that door, not completely, but close it for the moment so that you can take time to enjoy what's happening right in front of you, I think is important. I think black people just need spaces to process and let it all out because we haven't been able to. And every time something like this happens, it's just getting bottled up in there and it gets harder and harder to express it. And it gets expressed in bigger and bigger ways. Yeah, um, I wanted to also kind of express something that I saw happening quite often uh, over the last 24 hours. Um, we, we saw a lot of those pictures of, of cops kneeling down. Um, a lot of them were, were um, supposedly pledging some form of solidarity uh, with the people. And there, there are a number of things that we can talk about, um, the, the optics of it. Was it genuine or not? But I think it's the response that I saw from many white allies and even some black people that was very concerning. When we see a cop doing the bare minimum, we can have a tendency to just accept that, to think that this is a job well done. And then what happens is you, you hear phrases like, this is more what we need. We need unity. We need coming together. We need more peace, we need to build more relationships. And I think the frustrating thing about that conversation are, are, are two things that, that pop into my head. One, um, I, I, I feel as though we need to recognize like fighting systemic racism can only go so far with relationship building, right? Like. I can love this individual cop as much as I want, but that's not really gonna stop him from shooting the next unarmed black man or woman. There's no relationship there. There and so it 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 almost feels as though the 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 responsibility gets placed back on people of color to be the ones to build that relationship, to to do the work. But as as Logan said earlier this shouldn't be our problem to fix. It, it just shouldn't. And I think we, we have a tendency to frame the conversation um, and take the villain out and make it seem like it, it is a matter of, I wronged you and you wronged me. We've wounded each other and therefore we need to, to reconcile from it. But, but that is historically inaccurate of what police brutality is completely inaccurate but we have a tendency to take that villain out and it and it feels like we're 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 just kind of going in circles here and it, it's almost got to the point where like the word unity or the phrase coming together is like a turnoff now like it it irks me because it's always used by people that have all of the resources, all of the power, all of the infrastructure, and they're the ones saying that. And we've seen that in so many different avenues, whether we go through history and we see uh, uh, dictators use that same rhetoric. We see similar rhetoric 
with our own GC when it comes to women's ordination. And we see it now where you have people saying, let's come together, let's come together. But I'm like, but, but, but what does that look like? What that looks like is uh, you want to resume law and order in this country while you get to keep all of your resources. That's, that's what peace looks like to you. That's what coming together looks like to you. But I think we need to realize like that's not enough. And I think I also would want to challenge many of, of and this is a, a very personal conviction, many of my Caribbean family members, because that was where I saw a number of that rhetoric kind of come from, where they were, were pushing the relational method and they were questioning the legitimacy of the emotions behind the riots. I think we need to, to realize that although there is no real um, discrepancy amongst police officers when they're looking at me as a Jamaican versus uh, Nixon, you know, or Garrison, Garrison being, you know, African American. But I think we also need to realize that there, there's levels to pain here, right? Like I need, I need to recognize kind of like what Esther said in her perspective of she, she came from, you know, a middle class family. She had not experienced that kind of life as some of our other Black Americans did. I think Caribbeans can sometimes have a tendency to fuse their nationalism in the conversation of oppression. And that can be very harmful when you realize that there's pain here that we had never experienced. My parents growing up in Jamaica may have experienced some hardship. They may have even experienced some form of profiling. But I can confidently say that what they went through on that island was not in any way remotely close to what African-Americans have gone through in certain neighborhoods. And there's a tendency to say like, oh, I don't know, like what, what, what is this gonna solve? Or we just need to come together. And it's like, listen man, like we, we need to realize that like, it's not our job to fix it. It's just not. And I think we have a tendency to want to do that. I would even go as far as to say, I would say that relational responsibility lies solely on our white allies. Because we know racism is taught. Logan's gonna have access to that family member, that, that mother, that father, that aunt, that uncle, who's gonna be saying that to their child or to their children's children or to their niece and to their nephew. I don't have access to that. Nor do I feel like it's my responsibility anymore to convert racists into loving me. They've given up that grace uh, for me to step into that space. And, and that I feel like we, we need to fully recognize within the Black diaspora that like, it is not our job to convert people. It's, it's just not because it's exhausting and it takes away from the work that we could actually be doing. No, go ahead, Nixie. Yeah, thank you for. Oh, go ahead, Nixie. Uh, did you want to jump in there, Smart, or did you need to? No, you're good. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so well, so well said, Adrian. Um, I want to build off some of what you were talking about on the 
the fallacy of relationship building as a solution to racism real quick. And then I'll say one other thing. Um, I remember I, I was having it and I have to be careful about how I say this to keep anonymity. At least I'll try. We'll see. But I was at, I had a conversation um, once some years, well, a couple of years ago with a white pastor. Um, it was it was after a racial reconciliation rec racial reconciliation event that wasn't I was me. a part of. Yeah, it wasn't you. Thankfully, <laughs> you, you were around somewhere, though, I think maybe or actually no, this was something different. So this is actually the last like racial reconciliation event that I was a part of. And most of that has been because over the past few years, I've been wrestling with rethinking my whole thought process around what that should look like. And so we were having a casual conversation and he shared a quick story with me. He was talking about a church member of his, um, an older white man was, was talking with him about how um, he had solved you know, his racism and his bigotry because he was presenting this as if it, were, if it as if it were solved, as if it were something behind him. So just for context. So, yeah, you know, he said that his daughter was dating a black young man. He obviously was vehemently against this um, all throughout them dating, throughout them being engaged and then throughout, you know, up until them being married, just like super against it. Right. Um, like actively bigoted towards this black man uh, who was his son-in-law and uh, his wife's husband. I mean, his daughter's husband. Yeah, that would have been weird, wife's husband. Uh, so <laughs> he, yeah, he would have some other issues there to deal with. So he said that this was the solution. So a couple years into their marriage, um, as what tends to happen, uh, the daughter becomes pregnant with the child. Um, and so it's becoming more real for him that, okay, so this is like, y'all are really married, which that's all, that's weird. That's literally what the pastor said he said. And so that child is born. And so this guy saying to him that, yeah, once I saw that child, it like, it all, it was all solved for me. Like it all made sense. Like, you know, I, I had been cured from that and I could really see my son-in-law for who he is. And I, you know, I saw my grandchild and um, I understood that, you know, I was being so stupid and blah, blah, blah. And, and so I, I kind of, you know, you guys know I'm somewhat petty. And so he kind of finishes the story and I just said to him without really even thinking, it was just a knee jerk reaction. I just said, um, so yeah, so we just all need we just all need to jump into interracial marriages and we'll be good, right? And have a bunch of mixed kids. We'd be straight. Uh, he, <laughs> he <was> just, <laughs> so he he kind of was like, uh, yeah, maybe not. So I, I see what you're saying, kind of a thing. But it's like that that's the kind of that's the kind of way that we're um sort of socialized, or at least white people are socialized to believe that, yeah, you know. We just dive deeper into relationship or that most intimate relationship you can be in, and, and then everything will be fine and be solved. And it's just, it's just completely ludicrous, and um, and, and it's not going to happen. And um, for folks who are in interracial relationships and marriages, there there's a considerable amount of work that has to go into that in order for that to work well, not just for the both persons that are in it, but for 
um, that interracial child who then has to deal with the uh, the, the the dual um, cultural context that they'll have to deal with. And, and so, I mean, that that's probably a whole nother pod. But the second thing, the second unrelated thing I wanted to say, you know, about the protest specifically is that um, it just becomes more and more abundantly clear uh, with, you know, what Adrian was describing and with the tear gassing of peaceful protesters and just the aggressive nature that the police are answering all of this with, it's just like, I, this is not necessarily like a profound point, but what's really hit home for me is like, yo, these police departments could not care less about any of this, you know, like they do not care. Like this whole conversation is sparked by the over-policing and the aggressive, violent nature of particularly white cops towards black bodies. And the only language that they can speak is the language of violence. And so they're meeting these peaceful protests with violence because that's all they can do. That's all they've been trained to do. Um, and then we see these violent acts happening and then they talk about how that's not a part of their training. Well, then why does it keep happening? You know, uh, just because it's not in your training manual doesn't mean that, you know, the good old boy cop who's been there for 30 years isn't training up the little pup to do the same stuff. And it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know? So, I mean, the language that they speak in is violence. That's all. That's the only card they have to play. It's aggressiveness. It's escalation. Um, it's asserting their will. It, it's working out, you know, their little man complex or whatever it is that they have within them that's causing them to have to overcompensate for whatever it is you know, they're doing. Um, and so it just reminds me just at a fundamental level, like you know, all this kneeling and, and the fake kneeling and crap, like none of that stuff means anything to me because until they change their language from being one of violence to one of being to actually protect and serve uh, a community and people, uh, then none of it really matters. You know, it's just going to keep happening um, over and over and over again. Yeah, no, that's like reality. I, I resonate a lot with what Adrian was saying a little bit ago, talking about and kind of transitioning into what you're saying, Nixon. Um, there's this like one race. I kept actually kept hearing it. Uh, it's always cringe when there's a megaphone at a protest and a white person takes it over because they're like, oh, I'll do some chants, you know? And I'm always like, just, just like, how can I say this isn't about you? Like, I get it if um, you're shouting and it's like, you know, um, you're saying like, say his name and you're just shouting with your hand. But when you take the microphone, you're loud. This guy kept chanting this like, we're all one race, the human race. And I was like, well... Yes, but we're also only, there's only one race that's being disproportionately murdered by police. There's only one race that's being, you know, falsely accused. There's only one race that's being, having drugs planted on them at a disproportionate rate. Like there's only one race that's being terrorized by police at a disproportionate race than other. Now, yes, I know you always get the pushback, like the whole police brutality happens on a larger scale. And I'm like, yes, it does. But if you look at it, it's actually the opposite with white people. We are less of the police brutality and more of the population. Like, make this make sense. Like, there's only one race that's feared by the police that when 
you show up to, I don't care if it's a traffic stop or whatever, you're justified in your fear by saying, um, I fear for my life. The Fourth Amendment protects that. I mean, that's like just this reality. My my friend that the, that does prosecute or does um, he's an attorney for undocumented immigrants. He'll be in court with a five foot Hispanic woman, uh, undocumented woman, and she'll say that she got maced by three cops, and they're like, "Well, we we feared for our life." And he's like, "You're five feet tall. This woman. There's three of you. You're macing her." How, you know, but they're protected by this. Um, I think when it comes to the conversation of looting and rioting, um, what did I, I, I think I probably am more vocal about this on Twitter, um, but you know, would we rather have buildings or bloodshed? That's the reality of the conversation. Uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll put this to both sides. If cops, I mean, they can't because of their jobs, but if cops wanted to, they could mow down a lot of people with the guns that they carry. So yeah, like they could do that. Instead, they just mow us down with tear gas and rubber bullets and then try to, to say that they were justified in doing it to like yesterday in Oakland where we had 15,000 people. The protest ends at 740 and at 805, they're tear gassing a group that involved mainly high school students. Yeah, because those high school students with you know their arts and crafts signs are really posing a big threat to the Oakland Police Department of literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of police officers, not only police officers, but highway patrol and surrounding areas that don't have riots are sending in their cops. You know, do we want, I mean, because like we're in Oakland, this is a, this is a dead body murder capital of the world. If people wanted people to die here in this conversation, they would ensure that that takes place. And I think the reality of it is people have like changed it to where you can't, you know, put a sign on your door. You can't, say Black Lives Matter on Facebook, you can't kneel in a football game, you can't march down the street, you can't walk peacefully, you can't protest, you can't riot. And it's like, well, you can't listen. That's the problem, is that you can't listen. You can't take the time to say, those lives are actually valuable to us and we're gonna do everything in our power to alleviate this problem. And that means showing up to a protest that might get rowdy and saying, look, we're willing to take the risk of rowdiness by not wearing our military grade uniforms and saying, hey, look, uh, we're just here to hear you. We want to listen. We're not, yeah, we'll, we, I get it, they carry their guns, but we don't have to have batons and face shields and tear gas guns and rubber bullet guns and guys in literal SUVs with protection sniping at crowds. Like, you don't have to have these things. And until you realize that, yes, I get it. At night, it can get a little rowdier and I get it, you wanna come out, but I'll tell you right now, I didn't see a big presence in Oakland on Friday night of police. It's almost like they were like, let's let them blow it up so we can destroy them in a couple of days. Um, and it, it, it's just this reality that the conversation, you've got one side, 95% of them are willing to at least peacefully protest and have a conversation. And you've got police that are not anywhere close to 95% willing to have a conversation. They're not willing to cooperate. And I get it, people are saying F12 right to their face. That probably sucks. But maybe it sucks because there's a lot of systemic issues within your uh, force, within your system, within your unions to say, hey, look guys, we really need to rethink how we're approaching this because these people are very upset and they should matter to us. I mean, they're, we had 15,000 people yesterday. How is that not an important number of people? Um, yeah.
that's all I got to say. I'm going to stop rambling. I, I wanted to make one quick point off of something that Logan said, just in the in the comparison of, of buildings versus bodies. Um, and I think that is where I've seen the, the most um, uh, polarized stance amongst either as Black people or particularly with the allies, right? You had a lot of people trying to make a false equivalence of rioting versus shooting. Um, and that's where I think it it's a conversation that I remember Jordan and I having with his brother Gio about like it 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 is not enough to just not be racist. You have to actually do more work than that, right? Like the the idea of saying that you are anti-racist versus someone who is simply not racist is that someone who is anti-racist is going to share the same sense of urgency that I do in wanting to get something changed. But I think sometimes people feel like just because they have no animosity for a person of color, then that means that they've done their work. And that I feel like is 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 partly why when they see rioting happening, it, it removes the protection that they've told themselves law and order gives them as, as a white person. And when they look at people of color reacting that way, that's when you see who is truly an ally or not, because that's when you're able to know who's gonna share the same sense of urgency that I do, who has allowed themselves to um, empathize with how helpless so many people of color have truly felt. I remember uh, as I was on my way here, I listened to um, um, the podcast with, and I know like they're, they're not the greatest sports commentator, but it was with Shannon Sharp and Skip Bayless. And I have always been a fan of Shannon, primarily because he's always used that sports platform to talk about things. He's a lot of time talking about Colin Kaepernick. And I was very impressed with the way Skip Bayless had um, had provided his response of, I knew that I could not stay angry at the riots when I heard Shannon's pain about that death of Breonna Taylor and and uh, the other people that followed afterwards. It, it It's almost as if he was mentioning that something clicked in that moment where he could say something truly uh, traumatic would have to push so many people to act out of character. And that to me is what matters more in this particular conversation. And that I think is what I would encourage many uh, white individuals who want to carry the mantle of ally. That's good. You need to share the same urgency that we do or you are simply being complicit. And there's like a reality within that conversation. Um, there's no such thing as a non-racist white person. You are raised in a system that gives you a racial bias. You are raised in a system that says you're prioritized. You can't be not a racist because you are going to see lenses through a racist upbringing. You can be anti-racist. That's why I even said in the beginning of the show, like I noticed that sharing that that message to the group could have been deemed like Logan doesn't get it because 
he's white, which is because of racism. So in order for me, the, the, no one called like, Logan, you're a racist that you shared this video. They said, uh, in order to be anti-racist, you need to be aware of this. Don't, don't do that, look, Nick. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, so it's a really important distinction. White people shouldn't be trying to be non-racist. They should be able to be anti-racist. That means whenever they see their racial bias, they remove it and then they push away from it for other people to remove that same racial bias within their circles and in their society. Thank you all for sharing. Uh, John Felipe says, for leaders to reflect too closely on why violent protest is happening would require the admission that their policies have contributed to a history of oppression. Jasmine says, oh gosh, and I feel like she was referring to Nixon's story, which is honestly, I hate hearing that story, but the punchline is really good. It's really much <laughs> like, and then Daniel says, the rhetoric of unity has become about silence silencing those who are oppressed. And I really like what Steve Agley said here, uh, to the extent that reconciling images like this cut the tension that can lead to deeper change, they are unhelpful. So we're just gonna, in our last minutes, we're gonna move and just pivot a little bit to the Karens. And while there's so many Karens out there, we hope some of you are watching right now so you can learn a little bit more about how to be allies and not call us when you feel threatened. Um, and here's one thing I will say about Karen, and thankfully the point I was thinking about really ties into this. I was watching uh, Cornell West being interviewed by Anderson Cooper on CNN, powerful clip. I mean, first of all, what a guy, what a guy. And one of his direct quotes is, we are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. We're witnessing America as a failed experiment. And what I gleaned from what he was saying in the rest of the interview was that political, economical, judicial, and the social structures in our country were not made to be reformed. Our country is, well, I think one of the best things America can do consistently is fail at generating the things that it promises in its constitution every single day it fails to generate a society that helps people be all that they can be. It helps to it fails to generate a society that lets people feel fulfilled, people to feel equal, people to feel worthy, and our justice system cannot generate true justice. So there's, I, I love that word generate, I love that, because it's this idea that America cannot create, it can't consistently create a reality that it promises that it, it, it said it would. So Karen, I think Karen plays into that because the structure allows Karen to do the things that she does. If anybody could tell me how they feel about the Karen, and what I will say too, let me just, um, I'll give a little, bit, a little bit of background. And Nick, please jump in and fill in the, the, the details for me. I feel like I might miss some details. So there was a, a black man, he was a professor. Um, he was with his, I think, sister in the park and a uh, white woman was walking her dog. He calmly and very nicely asked this woman to put the dog on a leash. The woman refused to, it started to escalate. She threatened to call, to his face, to call the police and, and call the authorities and tell them that a black man is threatening her and is making her feel at risk, make her feel in danger. And it's just a sheer weaponization of one's whiteness 
that was incredibly, I think, audacious. Like I was shown this video by my partner, Monty, and I almost picked up her phone and threw it against the wall because I was so upset. So guys, please tell me, what was your first reactions to this? And uh, give me smoke for the Karens, please. I'm begging you. Before, just real quick, I just want to—I want—I don't have a reaction yet, but I just—I just want to say about that video that I love the fact that my man through all of that stayed so calm, and then when the Karen finally leashed her dog, he was like, "Thank you." <laughs> oh, I was like, "Yo, let's go!" I love it. Like, she was just like filming around. Like, okay. Yeah, because she, she was holding did. that like collar the whole time. Yeah, she was like about mm -hmm. to choke her dog to death. Literally. Yeah, like the they took the dog away from her, and <laughs> finally she laughed me. He's like, "Thank you," and then the video ends. So I just love that. Um, that's a very good point. I did not think about that. Um, my initial response to that Karen video, I feel like in the past when I've seen things like this, my initial go-to is like, okay, this is about implicit bias, right? Like you may not recognize what's happening here, but like, I'm sure you do really feel threatened. Sure. You feel threatened because you have an implicit bias against black people that makes you think that they are automatically dangerous and threatening. I feel like this video in particular pushed me to go past that because like, it wasn't just that, right? Like, sure. Like maybe that's like underlying it, but when she got on the phone to call the cops, she was very, like, very specific in what she was doing. Mm -hmm. She told him with her words, I'm going to call the cops and tell them that an African-American man is threatening me. And she knew exactly what that was. Like, th that's not, that's not a just implicit bias. Like, that is you understanding as a white woman, people are going to assume that I am the victim in any situation. And I understand the power that that gives me yeah. and the ability to use that against this person and do serious harm to them and in fact, endanger their life. And so I just, and I mean, you know, it's hard, like this is one instance, but I, I don't think it's a stretch to assume that that exact same thought process is happening in other people's minds in ways that are way more blatant than we think. Like, I think we've been giving them the benefit of the doubt to say that it's all implicit and underlying and they're not aware of it. I don't think that's true anymore. I think a lot of people really actually do know and are more than willing yeah. to use it whenever they see the opportunity. And I that is terrifying to me, extremely terrifying. Mm -hmm. So I just want to read Janelle's point super quick because I feel like it was very good. Janelle says she knew what she was doing and she knew that she was she has an oppressive system that would back her up. That lets us know the thought process in terms of power mm. and privilege of many in this country. Yeah, I definitely I agree with that point. And also, I think when I saw the video, um, I was just like, well, this is, this is typical, like Karen behavior. And it's been that way since America started. Like when we think about the ways in which, um, so much of our racial system was set up to protect the white woman from the lecherous black man, we just see that playing out over and over again 
uh, throughout history. So like whether it's the daughter of the slave master who takes advantage of a black male slave and then acts like the victim or whether it's the woman who lied about Emmett Till, this 14 year old boy, you know, it's still, it's the, it's, it's in character for the white woman to be in the position of being believed even when she's wrong. And for the tears of a white woman to elicit more compassion than those of a black person, a black man, a black woman. Um, and we see it even like in smaller scales in workplaces. I have a friend who uh, works at a company in Florida and she addressed an issue with a white coworker that the white coworker had caused. And then the white coworker who was maybe 15, 20 years her senior started crying. And so in this instance, my friend, the one of the only black women in that company ended up having to somehow care for the feelings of this woman who wronged her. In that way, that woman, 15, 20 years her senior, was weaponizing her whiteness to make her feel bad. One, for having the feelings that she felt when like my friend was offended, but then also to make my friend care for her. At that moment, her feelings became more important. And so I think we see this all of the time and Karens are not a new thing. We just finally decided on one name, whether it's Karen or Cheryl or whatever other name, we see how white women in this country utilize their whiteness. Yeah, that's actually hilarious. Um, that's real. You can go. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, Echo to everything else said, I, I want to point out and and I, we we had a pod on like misinformation, so I should have like confirmed this. But did y'all y'all also saw that there was some reporting that uh, Amy Cooper is, like is a liberal because like they like they found yeah she was her, a Hillary supporter yeah they found her making donations to Democratic campaigns and so I thought that that was actually pretty it was pretty important like if that's true now e even if that's not true. I think it is important for us to not necessarily necessarily caricature Karens as these, you know, Trump supporting, MAGA loving right. white women who are, are super conservative, and um, because of that, are weaponizing their whiteness against black people. No, no, I think it's really important for us to also note and understand how ingrained this is in the white liberal, particularly white liberal women. Um, where, whereas in some cases in, in 2016, that came forth in the demographics around who did and didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. The majority of white women voted for Donald Trump. You know, I don't know that all of them are hot, hardcore, you know, MAGA supporters, but there may have been independents who were on the fence and felt a certain kind of way about, um, you know, just femininity in general. And so sometimes there, you see some crossover of that with folks who have uh, racial blindness and bias. And so um, I, I just thought that that was a really 
important thing that in some ways kind of got glossed over because the instant reaction to her was, oh, you know, she loves Trump, MAGA, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> then once it became clear that she's probably a liberal, some of that smoke started to clear a bit, you know, and like people just kind of left the whole political side of it alone. Um, and there's a lot of tension around even getting into conversations around, you know, is Biden going to really show up for black people, assuming he gets elected? Um, and um, the way that the black vote is sort of used as a pawn a lot of times. And so yeah. I really had me thinking about some of those broader themes in the conversation as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think what's really interesting in that, in the tie into a bigger, our bigger conversation, we talk talk about how cops use this idea that I feared for my life. And we've seen this justified through if, if a black man is holding a cell phone, I see that as a weapon and I fear for my life, therefore it gives me justification to murder this person. I mean, when we talk about these Karens, how many times do white people interact with black men and women holding cell phones? And we're, we're setting this pre precedent in society to say that that if we see black people simply existing, then if I fear for my life, then it's okay to act out of that fear, call the police who I know will justify my fear, react to my fear, and they'll handle this situation because of, of what? And I, I think it's really troubling because we kind of empower white people, like just as a white driven society to control the fate of black, and brown people in our society based off of a glance, based off of the first thing that they notice, which is typically the color of their skin. And we've said, well, you know, it may be implicit bias, but you know, we can't do anything about how people view people. And I'm like, no, 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 we can. And you know, one thing is pushing back on the idea of like, first of all, stop calling the police. <laughs> first and foremost, like stop calling the cops on people unless your life is like in imminent danger. And I'm talking imminent danger. But reality is, is that I think society, you know, we, we protest for black lives, but I think that trickles down. We, we see cops set a precedent and then we're seeing the reaction to society kind of um, mirroring that precedent. And it's, it's an important um, correlation there. I, um, something that Danny said about um, like the workplace interactions that black women have with white women. I feel like so much of this Karen conversation has to be informed by the way that white womanhood is characterized in contrast to black womanhood. Mm. And we saw this, I don't, time, I don't understand anymore. I don't know when this was last week before the whole Lana Del Rey situation um, where she, went on this that weird rant online about like being a fragile white she didn't say white woman but we knew what she meant being a fragile woman and um you not being able to express that and listen to all these black women who were like whatever it was a hot mess essentially though like the underlying ideas were like she couldn't associate black women with fragility like she and she couldn't do it and a lot of people can't do that. And so much of what happens, like so many interactions that black women have with white women are, are, are characterized just by that. Ha knowing that whatever I do in this situation, unless I am tiptoeing around your feelings, 
you are going to see me as an aggressor and so are other people because I can't be viewed as fragile, as sensitive, as being able to be hurt. Like that strong black woman thing that gets that phrase that gets thrown around so much, it robs us of the ability to be harmed. And there's like, I mean, there's so much history, you know, underlying that that goes back to slavery of like, you know, the like the fact that crimes against black women, like actually like they weren't crimes, like it was impossible to rape a black woman because it wasn't raping black women was impossible. Mm -hmm. Like that sense of like, you can be a victim, you can be fragile, you can be hurt. Like th that is super, like that goes so deep. And I just, it, it is just, it seeps all into this conversation and it is extremely frustrating and difficult to navigate mm. in the real world. Yeah. Really good thoughts there. Wow. Mm -hmm. Really good thoughts. I had no idea that Lana Del Rey thing went down. So thank you for bringing that up. It really illuminates the conversation. Adrian, was there anything that you wanted to add before we move to PMI? No, not really. Uh, it's kind of hard to know what to say after Esther. <laughs> Keep it real. Uh, I wanted to get in there first. I knew she was ready. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, hey, man, hopefully we don't hear from the Karens uh, anytime soon. I kind of thought they the Power Rangers. They just kind of pop up and then dissipate and they pop, or like a flash mob, maybe. Okay, so. <laughs> So guys, thank you for covering these topics and thank you everyone um, following along with us. Please follow us on IG and also follow us on our YouTube channel. We also stream on our YouTube channel concurrently, um, ooh, that's a nice word, while we stream on Facebook. So you have two options there. I want you guys to stay connected with the show. Always know when we're on and please keep any post notifications for when we do go on uh, on your phone so you know how to Stay in touch and uh, you know when we go live. Kyle K says, I feel white women are that way, partially at least due to white male masculinity and the patriarchy. Thank you for sharing that, Kyle K. I think that's a great point. So before we close, Kira <laughs> Flash Mobs, hopefully will not be coming to you anytime soon. What is coming to you now is PMI. These transitions are ridiculous, aren't they? Uh, if we can just maybe start with uh, Danny and we'll move uh, to the next person, but we're gonna do something differently this time. We're going to be uh, sharing something that has piqued our interest this week. And that can be a TV show, film, book, documentary, uh, piece of music, anything in this case now that encourages or stimulates the mind into becoming an anti-racist or to help black people the most during this time. Danny, please go ahead. So um, I chose this book, A Different Mirror by Ronald Takaki. I read this in high school uh, for one of my history courses and it's a multicultural history of the United States. So going through the various decades, he uh, outlines what's going on in the lives of Japanese Americans, African Americans, Mexican Americans, Native Americans. So you're seeing history uh, as it really is by, as it's really being lived by everyone else in America at that time. Uh, because often our history books only give the history of white America. And so uh, this is a great book. This is my exact copy from high school with 
note cards and stuff in it. So I recommend going back to it. I recommend keeping it in your library and reading it because this is probably the best history book of American history I have read in my lifetime. Um, and you're not going to get this in school. You're not going to get this from the publishing presses that are making your textbooks. This is, this is the book to read. So that's what piqued my interest. Very good. So I had a boomer moment with leaving my mic mute and then talking. Uh, Logan, could you go for us next, please? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I kind of uh, have thought through this a little bit as things were transpiring over the last week or so and kind of how I could maybe push re-education without just like ranting on Facebook to my um, friends. So I, I picked up this book, White Fragility. I've realized that I've read a number of books on racism, uh, sometimes just part of them, you know, whatever, um, over the last few years. And I realized that I've kind of just talked to them with myself. And so is what I did as I said, hey, I'm going to buy this book. I just let people know it's about 150 pages. And then I put a comment on my, my Facebook and said, hey, if you want to join me, I'll do a Zoom call. We can talk about it, kind of go through it maybe a few chapters at a time over the course of maybe a month or so. And so that's what I did. I started, I guess it's an anti-racist book club of some nature where we're going to talk about white fragility. And then I'm going to try to challenge my group after they read this to pass it on to somebody else uh, with all their notes and, and underlines in it. So maybe somebody else could kind of benefit um, from the conversation. And so I'll pass that out. If you're listening and you want to be a part of this um, book club, feel free to message me. There's a lot of us in there. So we'll probably do some breakoffs. I think there's like 35 people so far that want to do it. So um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do that, and uh, yeah, white fragility. Robin D'Angelo haven't even started. I've been protesting every day, so hopefully I'll start this. I don't know when when we overthrow the um, establishment. Very good. Really quick, Danny uh, Javon is asking about the title and author of your book. Could you just uh, share that one more time for us, please? It's a different mirror. A History of Multicultural America by Ronald Takaki. Perfect. Thank you so much. Mike, could you share for us next, please? Sure. So I have just two quick uh, music-related things, um, specifically for Black people, for really for everyone uh, who wants to, um, just during this kind of tough moment, if you need an outlet or a release, uh, shout out to my wife, Tassiana, actually, while we were uh, filming, she sent me this Spotify playlist that you may or may not be aware of, Black Lives Matter. Um, there's a bunch of great content. Oh, my phone just went dark. There you go. There's a bunch of great content on there, a bunch of awesome songs. So I haven't even listened to it yet, but I, I saw some of the songs that I recognize, and I know that that's going to be a source of joy and strength. So for those of you that are looking for an outlet, and uh, another one, I'll just share this quick picture. Uh, you can see my boy Kirk smiling there. This is during the Kirk versus Fred Hammond versus. Um, man, this was phenomenal. Um, we, we were we we traded some some texts and stuff. I know a number of different of us on here were watching it. Um, it was just a moving experience. I mean, there are moments where I laugh, there are moments where I got emotional. Um, it was just like so, so many amazing hits and songs by both of them, obviously. Um, the thing that I thought was the most amazing were the, the people that were in the comments during the verses. I mean, you had 
movie stars, actors, athletes, um, pastors, activists, you know, all different types, and then regular folk like us. I mean, it was just like amazing to see. Yeah, well, yeah, he was in there too. Uh, so, you know, it was it was amazing to just see that, that um, just a real black moment for the community, for the culture. And, you know, Kirk and Fred, they did it from the same location. They had guest stars. It was powerful. I'm, I'm positive you can find it on YouTube if you didn't see it live. Uh, check it out. You will be blessed and, you're, and you'll feel a lot better. Mike, who won? Oh, I mean, Kirk won. I mean, it's no debate. I mean, <laughs> I hope that Hayes is right. Hayes. Shout out to, shout out to G. G. Hayes. The truth. <laughs> God, shout, out, <laughs> shout out to G. Hayes, who he was literally tweeting out that Fred won like two weeks ago before it was even confirmed that they were like, like, come on, Kirk's, Kirk's catalog is unmatched. Kirk could beat some mainstream artists in versus like let's just be real he got hits on it so. i probably could have beaten ellie the way he performed so not nah, super facts <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the internet and the speakers were crazy but i gotta shout out fred fred's my favorite artist and all that so i feel bad even saying it but um between the two of them i'd say actually fred he might have like one or two of the better songs like and even fred and even kirk said that like he talks about, he feels like No Weapon is the best gospel song ever written, uh, in his opinion, uh, and it was very gracious to Fred, but Kirk just, it's too much, bro. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Could, ooh, Esther, could you share for us next, please? Uh, yeah. So um, I don't know if this is like introductory to the conversation, if you are wanting to like understand more, but I'm on my Zora, Zora Neale Hurston kick. So um, Barracoon is, um, I get, I don't know how you would categorize this book. She interviewed the last surviving person to be brought over on a slave ship in mm. like 1940 something, I wanna say. So just think about that mathematically of like how recent that was. Um, it's a really tough read. Like I've been reading this book for like a year because it's, it is, extremely difficult to read because it's so recent and so raw, but it does a really great job of putting into perspective, um, A, just like the timeline of things and also understanding that like we do or did have people in like recent history who could reach back and understand and remember like the person in this book being taken from the shores of Africa being brought to America, living through reconstruction mm. and into the beginning of Jim, like this person literally saw and experienced it all. It is heart wrenching and difficult, but it offers a lot of like um, really powerful insight. And um, it's, yeah, it's just amazing. And Esther, what was the title of the book? One more time, please. Uh, Barracoon. I'm going to post the link to Barnes and Noble. Not we don't shop there anymore. Excellent. Uh, Amazon Prime has some great TV shows. Uh, Adrian, can you, <laughs> Adrian, can you share next one, please? Shame. Um, before I get into it, definitely wanted to reiterate what Nick said about uh, Kirk versus Fred. Um, it was also very timely yeah. uh, on myself. Very emotional um, listening to that music uh, because I think it just kind of reminded me 
how much I missed worshiping with my friends. Um, we were kind of like live texting each other in the group chat as it was going on. And it, I mean, it doesn't really pale in comparison to actually worshiping with them in person, but it, it kind of reminded me how valuable it was to do that in general. So definitely um, appreciate that. Um, what's piqued my interest is an idea that I got to give props to my, my brother, Jordan here. Um, he kind of introduced us to the idea where um, myself, Jordan, um, my sister Jasmine, and my cousin, who is also Jordan's brother, Gio, we're going to be reading um, How to Be Anti-Racist. That is by Ibram X. Kendi. Um, he does a great job in breaking down, I think, how to also be an ally. But he says a couple of things that I think are very profound, where he says, um, and I think it ties directly into what we saw today, primarily with the police photography. Uh, racial inequity is a problem of bad policy, not bad people. Mm -hmm. And also goes on to say, um, the denial of racism is the heartbeat of racism. That That is how it stays alive. Um, I'll, I'll post the link in the chat. Um, not from Amazon, as I've been recently scolded. <laughs> I'm terribly sorry about that. Um, but I, I definitely think it's a read for someone who's actively looking for ways that they can share the same sense of urgency that we do and is looking for perhaps practical um, guidelines for what to do next with all the convictions they felt this, this past weekend. So. Very good. Thank you for sharing. I'm very excited to continue reading this book. It's such a good book. Ibram X. Kendi is a genius. I feel like the information that he puts in this book came at the exact. It came out this summer, so it really came at came out at the exact uh, time that it needed to arrive in our hands. So what piqued my interest um, this week and also a couple of years ago is actually the uh, film "I Am Not Your Negro." which uh, essentially kind of expands on the book James Baldwin was never able to finish. And it gets into his views on where we are as a country and a race. And it's incredibly visceral. It's, in, it's incredibly just engaging. And I remember watching this when I was home, um, I think when I was still in school when it came out and I was just home for winter break. And at that moment, I feel like my eyes are really open in an all new way in terms of having to tackle racism and how it's it's uh, it's something that I'm going to have to work to do and to work to vanquish to the day I die. So it's very inspiring, and I encourage you to rent it. And also, too, I just found this out. WB is also offering Just Mercy for free for the month of June to stream at home. Um, so I encourage you to also check that out if you desire. And that is piqued my interest, and that's our show. We wanted this piqued my interest to be very specific to what is going on today, because we said this before and earlier in the show that having these resources and gaining this knowledge is essential in the fight against racism and in the journey to become anti-racist. I'm Jordan Smart. This is Danielle uh, Bernard Nixon for short, Esther Battle, Adrian Marson, 
and Logan Stout. We're so glad you guys were able to join us. Please stay safe. Please stay healthy. Please take Go breaks protest. And, and protest, and please never stop fighting. Uh, we need you out there. And uh, thank you for having us, and we hope you have a good night. This is Affirmative Action, and we'll see you next week. Interaction, but close enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what I mean. Whatever. Carrots, don't don't come after me. All right. <laughs> Are we still alive?